It's great to be with you this morning. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what to think when a church invites you to come in and preach on the footnotes in the Bible. I don't know if that's a great honor or if that's an indication of what your preaching is normally like. But either way, I'm glad to be with you this morning to tackle what can be a difficult topic. And I hope this morning I can say something constructive and helpful about it with you. If you would, turn in your Bible to John chapter 8. If you're reading from the Black Pew Bible in front of you, I've got a copy of that. It's on page 894. And what I'd like to do with you is read the text together with you, and then I'll explain what we're going to do with it this morning. All right. So John chapter 8, it technically starts in the very end of John chapter 7, but your ESV has put the last verse of chapter 7 together with the beginning of chapter 8. It says, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, uh, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Well, that's the text in your Bible this morning. But if you were looking at it closely, you'll notice, as Malachi already already said at the beginning, there are two brackets right before this passage, aren't they? and two brackets at the end, and there's even a note in front of it, and there's an even longer footnote at the bottom of your page. So what I want to do with you this morning as we think about what's going on here is I want to consider why these verses are in your Bible. Then I want to to explain to you why they have this particular note and and, and explain it a bit more more in detail for you. And then lastly, I don't just want to leave us there. I don't want to just give a kind of a lecture this morning to you all. What I'd like us to do is think about some of the things in this passage that, that are completely in line with what the rest of the scripture teaches us about Jesus and what he came to be and to do for us. All right, so that's what I want to do. This passage, of course, is one of the most famous in the Bible, isn't it? People love this, this passage. All right, so if you would, let's go ahead and pray and then we'll jump in. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word that exposes our hearts, that comforts our hearts, and that teaches how to live rightly. Help me now, Lord, in these moments to explain clearly and carefully what the issue is with this text, why it's in brackets, why there's a footnote, and what's going on there. Then as we think together about what we can still learn about Jesus from it, be with us and guide us in Christ's name, amen. All right, so as I said, what I'm going to do is think together with you Uh, First, about why are these verses in your Bible? Why do they have this note? And then think together about some of the things that they reflect that's true from the rest of Scripture. All right. Firstly, by way of background, all right, we need to say two things. 
The first thing we need to say by way of sort of background to set up the issue is that I don't know any Christian denomination or branch of Christianity that, that, um, that believes that God inspired the scribes who had to copy the Bible by hand. Now already I've said some things that some of you are going, what are you talking about? Why are we talking about scribes? Well, as you may know, not everybody has read the Bible in a neat, handy, printed Bible like you can do this morning, right? Until the invention of the printing press, if people wanted a copy of the Bible, they had to copy it by hand, right? And Christians believe, and you believe at this church, that God inspired the authors of the Bible. God inspired the author of the Gospel of John. John, right? Inspired Matthew and Mark and Luke and Paul and Moses. But I don't know any Christian denomination that believes or teaches that God inspired the scribes who copied their work. Are you with me? In other words, right at the beginning, we need to make an important distinction theologically between what God did through the authors of Scripture and what he did through the scribes who had to copy them. You might think it, you might think of it differently. Do you believe that God has inspired the translators of your Bible? I'm sure we would all say no, wouldn't we? We don't think that the translators of our Bible are inspired and kept from making any kind of error, do we? We wouldn't, we wouldn't say that. And in the same way, we wouldn't say that God did that for the scribes either. All right, so that's the first important thing we need to keep in mind is that we believe that God inspired the authors and he protected them from error in what they wrote, but he did not do the same thing for scribes all the time. All right. Now, as we'll see, I think scribes still did a pretty good job copying our Bible. We'll get into that, okay? But right away, we just need to sort of think theologically for a second and realize that God has not made a promise to, to um, keep scribes from making mistakes. The second way of, uh, by way of background thing we need to say is that you need to know the originals of your Bible are lost. We don't have them, right? So we don't have the copy that John wrote of his gospel. We don't have the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome and sent to them. This is not surprising at all, historically speaking. We don't have pretty much any original from any ancient work, any ancient writing, right? We don't have the original of great, the great histories that the Greeks wrote, right, or the great plays that they wrote, or uh, things like the Iliad and the Odyssey. We don't have the originals of those either, right? They were written on things like papyrus and parchment, and these are materials that wear out over time, and so they have not survived. And the result is that the surviving copies that we have, the, have of the Bible have differences between them. That's why you have footnotes in your Bible like this one here, okay? Scribes were not perfect. Copying by hand is hard. As I always say, if you don't believe me, try it, right? You go home today and you copy out John's gospel by hand and see how you do, <laughs> right? There's a saying that scribes often wrote in their manuscripts when they got to the end and it's a little saying, it goes like this. It says, as a traveler rejoices to see his home country at the end of a long journey, so the scribe rejoices to see the end of a book, right? It's hard work. It's hard work to copy by hand. And God did not work the miracle of protecting every last scribe from making mistakes. So as a result, our surviving copies of the Bible sometimes have differences. And that's why I'm here with you this morning, all right? 
That's why Malachi's not up here preaching this text to you, okay? We can blame the scribes for me being here. All right. So let's start then by thinking this question. Okay, why is this passage in your Bible? You've already probably gotten a hint. The reason he, he must be talking about scribes because there's some kind of scribal difference here. And as you can read the note at the beginning of the passage, it says the earliest manuscripts do not include this passage. So why then is it in your Bible at all, you might ask? Well, let's start there. The simple reason why it's in your Bible at all is because it's been in the English Bible for a long, long time. In fact, it's been in the English Bible since the very first complete English Bible ever. Some of you have heard of it. It's called the Wycliffe Bible, which was translated in the 14th century. If you were to go all the way back to that Bible, it would be difficult to read. Okay, it's like if you're familiar with something like Beowulf or the Canterbury Tales, it's in that style of English, okay, so it's hard to read. But when John Wycliffe and his followers translated the Bible, this passage was in their manuscripts, and so they translated it into English. And then later in the 16th century, when William Tyndale came along and became the first person ever to translate the New Testament from the original Greek, Wycliffe and his followers had translated it from Latin, Tyndale translated it from Greek, it was also in his copies of the Bible that he had. So when he translated it in English, he naturally translated this passage, all right? So both these famous translations include this passage because it was in their sources. And by the time you get to something like the very famous King James Bible that was produced in 1611, all English Bibles up to that point included this passage in them, all right? So before we get any further, I want to say that's the first, and I would suggest the most important reason why this passage is still in your Bible today, is because it's been part of the English Bible for a very, very long time. And Bible translators, you should know, typically don't like to make dramatic changes to the Bible if they don't have to. And here, translators come along to this passage and they go, we could do two things. We could take it completely out of people's Bibles, or... We could just put a footnote in there. <laughs> well, which one is less intrusive? Obviously, it's much less intrusive to put some brackets around it and a footnote, right? And so translators much prefer to do that. It's much less intrusive way to handle it, all right? So that's why it's like that in your Bible. You might, you might be interested to know the first Bible to ever have a footnote in English about this was published in 1881, known as the Revised Version. It was the first, at least the mainstream English Bible to mark the text in this way. And what you need to know that had happened in the intervening period between, say, something like 1611 with the King James Bible, okay, and 1881 with the Revised Version, is that scholars discovered a lot more copies of the New Testament, okay? So I'm going to have Jonah put a slide up here now to give you some sense of how dramatic the increase in our knowledge was between those two points in history, Tyndale's Bible, if you can see it up there on, the, on your left, okay, published in 1526, was informed by only about a dozen Greek manuscripts. Now remember, he's the first person ever to translate the New Testament from Greek, okay? So people are just starting to do this. So he used what he had available, and the addition of the Greek New Testament that he had available was only based on about a dozen manuscripts. By the year 1707, there was another edition of the Greek New Testament that was informed by about a hundred manuscripts, okay? If you fast forward to 2001, when your ESV was published, scholars had cataloged 30 times that number of manuscripts. You see that? 30 times. So if you're wondering why the change between, say, Tyndale's time or the King James and the ESV, the very simple answer is we have discovered and studied and learned about a lot more evidence for the Bible. 
Now let me stop and pause there just for a second and say something that I think is helpful. Sometimes you may encounter people who think that because the, something like the King James Bible is older than your ESV, you might think, well, it's closer to the sources. It's closer to the time of writing. It must actually be better, right? Certainly there are plenty of things that are older and are better, right? Okay, I'm a child of the 90s. I think that's when our culture peaked, right? The best music, the best TV shows, the best clothing. Am I right? Can I get some amens from some people? Okay, okay. We're on the same page then this morning. Very good, okay? You might think older is always better, right? But when it comes to Bible translations, actually because we have discovered so many more manuscripts over time, your Bible today is actually far better informed by manuscript evidence than what the King James was informed by, do you see? King James is still a wonderful translation. It was a great translation, especially for its time. But we've learned a lot more since then, all right? So by 1881, the increase in manuscripts had convinced many scholars and translators that this particular story, famous as it was, was not original to John's gospel. And so from that point on, most major English Bibles note the problem in one way or another, right? They'll put brackets around it, some will italicize it, almost all of them will have some kind of footnote. So if Jonah goes to the next slide here, you can see here's the footnote, not the note above it, but the actual note way down in tiny little print in your Bible. Here's what your ESV footnote says. It says, some manuscripts do not include 753 through 811, which is our story, right? The story of the woman caught in adultery. And then it says, others add the passage here or after chapter seven, verse 36, or after chapter 21, verse 25, that's the very end of John's gospel, okay? Or after Luke 21, 38, with variations in the text, all right? Now that's in some ways not very much information, is it? So what I'd like to do with our next section here is just explain that a little bit with some more detail, okay? As I've already suggested, when it comes to the gospel of John, we are blessed with an overwhelming abundance of copies of it today in Greek, okay? To date, scholars have cataloged nearly 3,000 of them. That's more than any scholar can study in a lifetime, way more. And to give you some perspective of just how many that is, if you were to compare John's gospel to something of about the same time, like maybe you've heard of the Gospel of Thomas. Anybody heard about the Gospel of Thomas? You'll hear it in the news sometimes. The Gospel of Thomas is one of these non-canonical gospels, okay? If we had more time, I'd explain it to you, but it's quite different from John's gospel. If you read it, you would understand immediately why it's not in your Bible. Trust me, okay? It does not end with Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead. So as far as early Christians were concerned, it's not really a gospel at all, okay? But, but all that to say, if you think about the gospel of Thomas, we have a total of four copies of the gospel of Thomas, only three of them are in the original language, Greek, that it was written in, and all three of those are very fragmentary. We do not have a single complete copy of the Gospel of Thomas in the original language. You with me? How many do we have of the Gospel of John in its original language? Answer, 3,000. 3,000, right? So needless to say, the Gospel of John is in a league of its own <laughs> when compared to something like the Gospel of Thomas, all right? Now, when we think about those 3,000 manuscripts, there are two main types. Now, this is as technical as I'm gonna get this morning, okay? This is as technical as I'm gonna get. All right, so hang on with me for this part, and I promise this is as technical as it'll get. There are two types of manuscripts, okay? One type is what we call continuous text manuscripts. That's where a scribe wanted to copy the whole Gospel of John start to finish, right? Okay, and maybe he had Matthew, Mark, and Luke before that. 
The other type is what we call lectionaries. Now those of us in, in sort of a low church tradition or Baptist tradition might not be as familiar with the lectionary system, but the lectionary is designed for reading in church or in the Middle, Middle Ages in the monastery. And what scribes would do with the lectionary is you take one passage, say from Mark, and you read that. And then you take another passage from say John and you read that. And then the next Sunday you do the same thing with, but with different passages from all over the Bible, okay? And that's the other type of manuscript we have of John's gospel. So two types of manuscripts, continuous text ones, and then these lectionary ones, all right? In the continuous text manuscripts, the story here of the woman caught in adultery is found in about 1,500 of them, all right? It's found in about 1,500 of those and is missing from about 270 of them, all right? So that's about 85% of those that have it, and then if my math is right, 15% that don't. The lectionary is then split into two types of system that I won't go into detail about, okay? But the first type of system includes the story, and there are about 500 copies of this type. The, the second type of lectionaries, um, we, it does not have it at all. And what's interesting about this one is that in those lectionaries, the reading for that day goes from John chapter 7, verse 52, and then jumps right to John chapter 8, verse 12. You see that? which suggests that whoever invented that lectionary system probably did not have this passage in their Bible. Does that make sense? All right. Now that's, so, so the two types of lectionaries, there's about 680 copies of those. So if, Joan, you want to put the slide up, what you get then is something like this, all right? In blue, those are our Greek copies that have it, and in orange, those are our Greek manuscripts that don't have it, all right? So when your ESV footnote says something like some manuscripts, <laughs> which is pretty vague, right? That's pretty vague. Some manuscripts don't include this passage. That's what we're talking about, all right? Out of about 3,000 Greek manuscripts, just over about 30% do not have this passage in them, okay? Now the problem is bare numbers don't really tell us very much, do they? We need to think more about the age and the quality of these manuscripts to think about what, we're, what, what this implies, all right? We also need to think about some other evidence beyond just Greek manuscripts. So I'm gonna try to cover this as quickly as I can because again, I don't wanna get too bogged down in the details. First of all, let me address what your footnote says in your ESV about it being in different places, okay? Remember, your, your footnote says that sometimes it occurs, most of the time it occurs here in John, sometimes it occurs in chapter seven, verse 36, or after 21, 25, and then sometimes after, uh, actually in Luke's gospel, all right? Without going into the details of this, what you need to know is basically, I think, all those movements of it, uh, they're only in a, few, a small, small handful of medieval manuscripts that, that do that, and they almost all have to do with that lectionary system I told you about, where scribes got confused because of that lectionary system and the way it jumps around. So I actually think that's not super helpful to have in your footnote because it makes it sound worse than it is, <laughs> okay? All right, enough of that, we'll move on. I can say a lot more about that, but I'm not going to. All right. When we think about the quality of these manuscripts, these 15, these 3,000 manuscripts, you need to know they're not all like super duper early, okay? The vast bulk of our manuscripts are from the Middle Ages. And when you go back to the earliest manuscripts we have, if you were to say take, um, oh, the first, the earliest, say, dozen copies we have of John's Gospel, only one of them actually has this passage. So when you think about the date of our manuscripts, not just the numbers, this is something scholars have to think about. What about the earliest ones, okay? And the earliest ones generally do not have it, okay? So that includes copies as early as the third and fourth centuries. Joan, if you wanna show the next slide up there. Here, these are our two earliest copies 
of John's gospel. Where are my Greek students at? I see a number. Let's just read it right now, shall we? <laughs> this is your quiz. You didn't know your exam was going to be today. They're like, please don't. Please don't. This is, these, are, these are really hard to read if you don't have a trained eye, okay? But those are earliest copies. And, and, the, and the text just goes straight from the end of John chapter 7, John 7.52, straight to John 8, what we call John 8.12. Keep in mind, there's no verse numbers at this time, right? You could probably tell. You don't have to read a word of Greek. Be able to work, read a word of Greek. You can look at that and see there's no chapter numbers and no verse numbers, right? Okay. So it's not like a scribe would somehow go, huh, how did I end up getting this wrong number? Okay. It doesn't, doesn't quite work that way. All right. So those are two of our earliest manuscripts. Joan, if you want to go to the next one. This is our earliest manuscript that does have the story. And what's significant about this one, I've given you a picture for a reason, because on the left side is Greek, and on the right side is Latin. Okay, this is a, what we call a bilingual manuscript. Okay, from the fifth century, Codex Beza is what it's known as, and in the orange square there, that's at least the start of the story. The reason why I want to put this picture up is, one, because it's the earliest that has the story, but also because it's not a coincidence in my mind that it's Greek and Latin. Because one of the things that we find is that the story is more common in the Latin-speaking side of the early church than it is in the Greek-speaking, okay? We'll unpack that here in a minute, but I'll just show you that. And then one more, just gotta show some pictures for the kids this morning, all right. <laughs> this, this is an eighth-century manuscript known as Codex Regius. And this one's interesting because what you can see is the scribe actually left a blank space, do you see that? These are two consecutive pages, and that orange box is where you could fit this story. Those ones, these are kind of manuscripts that really excite scholars like me because then it's like a puzzle. We've got to figure out what happened here. Did the scribe think, well, I know about the story, but I don't think it's original or authentic, so I'll leave it out. But other people might disagree with me, so I'll leave them room if they want to fix it later. Uh, who knows? You know, he didn't leave a note. Now, there, there is a little note on Latin over there on the left side, um, but I don't think it helps as much. It's probably quite a bit later. Okay, so this just gives you some idea of, of how we find this section of text in some of our earliest manuscripts, okay? So as I said, the earliest manuscripts do not have it. Then we can think about other, thing, other evidence beyond just the manuscripts. Early on, the Greek New Testament was translated into other languages like Latin. We've already seen a picture of Latin. But also translated into languages like Syriac and Coptic. Coptic is an Egyptian language that uses Greek letters. And most of these earliest translations, in fact, those, those three in particular, which are our earliest, they also do not have this story in them, all right? So they suggest that at least whoever translated those, uh, those editions did not have it in their Greek copies as well. Now it was eventually added to some of these translations. So Jerome, you may know the name Jerome, who translates the Latin Vulgate in the fourth century. Jerome actually tells us at one place that he says some of his manuscripts don't have the story, which means most of them do, right? And then when he translates the Latin Vulgate, he does translate it into Latin, and that's how it spreads in the Latin uh, tradition, all right? The Syriac translation, the, this story does not enter until much, much later, like in the Middle Ages, and the Coptic translation is similar where it's not found in most of our early copies of the Coptic. What's most interesting to me, though, is a third type of evidence we have, which we call patristic evidence. The church fathers were these early theologians who wrote about the Bible a lot. <laughs> and it won't surprise you to know that when they did, they liked to quote from the Bible, right? What, do we, what kind of evidence do we get from those early church fathers? I think this is the most 
important evidence of all in some ways. If we look at the Latin-speaking fathers, we know the story is well known by the fourth century. I already mentioned Jerome. The other name we could add to that list is Augustine. Augustine also discusses the story and says it's found in most of his copies. Not all, but most. Augustine also famously gives us the first explanation for why someone might have taken it out of the Bible. And I find, I have to tell you, with, offense, with, with, with no offense intended to those of you who love Augustine, okay? Thinking of my friend Steve Doobie just for a second. Sorry, Steve. I think, he's really, I think, he's, I think this explanation is really bad. He says, well... Somebody took it out of the Bible because these men were afraid their wives would read the story and then be unfaithful to them. That's literally, that's literally his argument. And I think, I don't really buy that, Augustine, at all. <laughs> I don't think, first of all, there's a number of other places in the Gospels where Jesus shows mercy on, say, unfaithful men or women, and they didn't take those parts out of the Bible, right? Okay. Secondly, if you actually read the story with, like, even you're half awake, you get to the end and realize Jesus is not excusing her sin, is he? Okay, so I just have to say, though I love Augustine, I think on this one, he whiffed it. All right. Sorry. Sorry, Augustine. Okay. What about in the Greek-speaking East? Okay, we've talked a little bit about Latin. By the fourth century, it's clearly known to people like Jerome and Augustine, and they even, seem to, they even accept it. In the Greek-speaking East, it's more interesting uh, we don't find this story referenced at all in the writings of a very, very famous preacher. In fact, the most famous preacher of the ancient world, which is John Chrysostom. He's a fourth century uh, preacher. He's known throughout the world. People still read his sermons today because they're so wonderful. And he never even mentions it in all his writings, okay? Which is really curious. If he knew about it, you'd expect him to say something about it somewhere. And in fact, in the Greek-speaking East, you don't find a single commentator on John's gospel who knows the passage until the 12th century, okay? Which suggests to me that probably what happened is the story first gets into some copies of the Bible, like that one I showed you, where they're Greek and Latin, and the Latin-speaking side of the church accepts the story, and then it spreads in the Latin church much more than in the Greek-speaking side, side of the church, Okay? More tellingly on this question of the church fathers is that the earliest references we have to this story actually suggest that it's not in John's gospel. Okay? The very first reference we have to it is from the third century. The story is referenced without any source, so we just don't know. But by the fourth century, we have a church father named Didymus the Blind. That's his name. Okay? That's really his name. And yes, he was actually blind. Okay? He apparently had memorized the Bible. That's how he was able to write about it, which is another story for another time, okay? But Didymus the Blind tells us in his writings that he says the story is found in certain gospels, plural. Do you hear that? He says it's found in certain gospels, plural. And then most tellingly, the church historian Eusebius in the fourth century says the story is found in what he calls the gospel according to the Hebrews. And he may at this point be citing an, e an even earlier source for this information, all right? The first source we have that very clearly references the story and says it's from John's gospel is Ambrose in the late fourth century, so around the same time as Jerome and Augustine. Well, that's really significant. That suggests to us that this may well be a story that people were telling and it ends up in different gospels and eventually somebody says, we've gotta put this in the Bible and they put it in John's gospel. Are you with me? Now at this point, you probably have a question in your mind that you're going, well, how often does this happen? 
Like were people just for centuries just like adding whatever they wanted to the Bible, <laughs> right? And the good news for you and for me this morning is the answer, the simple answer to that is no. This does not happen a lot. In fact, it doesn't happen very often at all. There are only two places in your entire New Testament where you have a passage of this length that is in question like this. Some of you already know this. It's this story, the woman caught in adultery, and then the, what we call the longer ending of Mark. But you might still be thinking, but okay, but, but Dr. Gurry, you're saying this did happen. How do we know it didn't happen a bunch of other times and we just don't know it? Yeah? And that maybe our Bible was changed by people and we don't know it. And so what we have today is just some sort of hodgepodge Bible of who, whatever people wanted to put in there. The really simple answer to that question is we know that didn't happen everywhere else <laughs> for the same reason we think it probably did happen here. And the answer is all those 3,000 copies of the Greek New Testament that I mentioned, right? You would have to argue that people managed to change the Bible without leaving any trace whatsoever. Are you with me? In fact, the fact that this one has left such a, such a significant trail, if I could put it that way, that's how we know there's an issue at all, do you see? So we know this didn't happen in other places in the same way and using the same evidence that we use to know there's a problem here. Are you with me? That's why you can have so much confidence in your Bible that what you have in your Bible where there isn't a note that the translators have given you, the translators are giving you what's found in pretty much every manuscript. Are you with me? That's really important for you to know because the worst thing that could happen this morning is that you leave thinking, wow, my Bible must be full of places like this. It's not. I'm not going to be back next week to preach. Some of you are like, thank goodness. No, okay. Right? Your Bible is remarkably trustworthy. It's remarkably trustworthy. It has been copied so many times that we have good reason to believe that where there's no differences in our manuscripts, it's because they preserve the original text as God inspired it and gave it to his people. All right, so that's what we might call the sort of the evidence of the manuscripts. Let me just briefly mention some other things that people think about when they ask about this text and whether it's original to John or not, okay? There is a little bit of a disjunction that the story creates, all right? Some people will point to things like the style of the Greek or some of the words that are used in it. I'm not going to go into that partly because I just think the story is so short that it's not entirely fair to compare it to the rest of John and think that we could make accurate deductions about who wrote it or who didn't. But you will notice that at the end of chapter 7, verse 52, okay, the, priest, the chief priests and the Pharisees are having a conversation with Nicodemus about the people, and it just so happens to be a conversation about the law and people being accused by it and what you should do when people are accused, all right? Now, then verse 52 says, they replied, are you from Galilee too? They're saying this to Nicodemus. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And then if you jump to chapter eight, verse 12, it says, again, Jesus spoke to them. And it flows pretty naturally because the them is the people he's just been talking to before that. The problem with verse 12 is if you have the story of the woman caught in adultery before it, the last thing in that story is that everybody's gone, right? It's just him and the woman. So when verse 12 says, again, Jesus spoke to them, you're going, well, who's them? Where did they come from, all right? Now, I'm not suggesting it's impossible, okay? John can sometimes assume that we're good enough readers that we can figure out he means some other group of people or whatnot. But it's just one of those little things that makes you go, huh, Given the, given the manuscript evidence as we've described it, then you start to look at some of those things internally and you go, yeah, this maybe suggests that it really was 
added later. All right, so as a summary then of what we said so far, why is this text in your Bible? The answer is because despite the evidence against it being original, it's been accepted by a lot of Christians and it's been in the English Bible from the very beginning, right? It's been in the English Bible for a long time and a lot of Christians have read it as belonging in the Bible. And then again, why is it marked? Because as more manuscripts were discovered over time, the earliest evidence gave translators good reason to think this is not originally part of John's gospel, all right? The most recent in-depth study of the issue suggests that it was probably added sometime in the third century. And there are various theories that I won't get into this morning as to why it was added then, and then why it was added at this spot and not somewhere else, okay? But for the sake of time, I'll let you ask me about that maybe after if you're really curious, okay? The most important reason that it's marked is because it's easier to explain why these verses would be added than it is to explain why they'd be removed, right? I already gave you the argument from Augustine. That's, that's the best argument I've ever come across for why it would be intentionally removed. And as I said, I don't find it very convincing. So then we're left to say, is it more convincing that a scribe would add it? And I think, yeah, it is. Why? the same reason you, <laughs> you're here this morning, because it's amazing, right? It's an amazing story, is it not? So at some point along the way, a scribe probably felt like, man, this story is too good. We gotta make sure people know about this. And so he probably added it here, I think partly because of the discussion of the law. So that, that's the basic reason that convinces many scholars today to think this is not original to John's gospel. Now let me pause here and just say, most scholars, and I'm in agreement with them on this, most scholars read this passage and think, you know what? Even if John didn't write this and he didn't put it here in his gospel, this story has all the marks of something that really happened, okay? And just think about it for a minute. Doesn't this story sound like other stories you know from the gospels? It's like a classic story of Jesus. It's, it's what I call an entrapment scene, right? Where the Jewish leaders come to Jesus and they have some great difficult question for him. And here the difficulty, the question is, right, Jesus is trapped because if he says, guys, don't stone her, then it looks like he's overthrowing the law, the Old Testament law, do you see? He's challenging the Bible's authority, we would say. And then they're gonna have an easy wedge to, let, to use as leverage to pit him against the people and say to the people, you can't follow this guy, he's against Moses. If you follow him, you're against Moses too, do you see? On the other hand, if Jesus says, yep, that's what the law prescribes, go ahead, now he's got a problem with who? The Romans. Because the gospels tell us elsewhere, at this, at this point in history, the Romans did not seem to allow the Jews to practice capital punishment. So if Jesus has them go ahead and stone her, and then the Romans come in and go, what are you doing here? They can all say, Jesus told us to. And that gives them a great argument to use with the Romans to get him in trouble. So it's a classic entrapment scene, right? In fact, that's what the text even says. They don't ask this question out of innocence. They're not looking to do what is right as far as God is concerned. They're looking to trap somebody they really don't like, somebody who's getting in their way, right? Somebody who's challenging their authority. And then of course, Jesus, amazingly, as he does when they do this, right? He gets out of the trap. And in so doing, he ends up trapping them, doesn't he? So I look at the story along with many other scholars and think, I, I would bet good money this story really happened. Yeah? Even if John didn't write it. Now, at this point, some bells may be ringing for some of you thinking, isn't this exactly what John tells us? And the answer is yes. If you flip to the very end of John's gospel, 
Go ahead if you, if, you have, if you have your Bible. Flip to the very last verse of John. John tells us that we should expect that Jesus did more things than he could write about. Look what he says in verse 25 of John chapter 21. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Like what? Like being entrapped. <laughs> Having a woman caught in adultery brought to him. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Do you realize that Jesus did more and said more than what the Gospels could include? Right? He had to have. At best, they give us, they give us three years of his life. And if you read through the Gospels, it takes you less than three years. Right? Simple math. They had to leave things out. All right? You might ask, well, why did they leave this one out? I don't know. Who could? I can't say. John didn't tell us that. But that suggests that this may really have happened and somebody at some point thought we want to include that. Now, at this point, we have to ask the question, what do we as Christians today do with this? If this passage has been in our Bibles for so long and many Christians have read it as scriptures, how should we read it today? Should we follow the lead of some and treat it like the rest of scripture? In which case, I wouldn't have been here this morning. (laughs) You're going, well, he's probably not gonna say that. Or are we obligated by our knowledge of better evidence to conclude that it isn't scripture and so doesn't belong in the Bible? And I just need to tell you this morning, I know good thinkers who I respect who take different views on this, okay? There are good arguments for each of these cases, so I'm just gonna cut to the chase and say, here's my own view. My view is that as much as we can, I'd like to honor both. Both the manuscript evidence that we have, that God has given us, I think we have an obligation to take it seriously, and be faithful in interpreting it, and I think that evidence suggests it's not original to John. But on the other hand, I do wanna show deference and respect to the church, and the fact that many Christians have read this passage as scripture. So here's my, here's my suggestion to us, that the best way we can do this to respect both of these is by not treating it as scripture, but still letting it illustrate for us truths that we know about Jesus from the rest of scripture. Does that make sense? Or you can still read it and say, there are things in here that we know are true about Jesus and we know they're true from other parts of scripture. So where this passage reinforces those, you are welcome to use them for just that purpose, to reinforce for you and to illustrate for you what we already knew about Jesus from the rest of scripture, right? So as I said, I think it probably did happen. And that's my way of approaching it then. So what I wanna do with the last few minutes we have here this morning is do just that with you. I don't wanna just leave this morning with a lecture, all right, on how we got the Bible. That's a topic I love to talk about, but it's not the same thing as preaching. And I have a conviction that I think the pulpit is a place for preaching God's word, yeah? So I don't wanna leave you here this morning unfed, if I can put it that way. So here are three truths that I think this story wonderfully illustrates for us. Things that we know about Jesus from the rest of scripture that are especially maybe poignant in this passage. The first one is this. This passage shows us and reminds us that Jesus is the author of the law. He's the author of the law and therefore it's true interpreter. He's the author of the law and his true interpreter. Why do I say this? Because I think this best explains one part of the story that, that like nothing else in the story captures our imagination. Haven't you wondered this? I know you have if you've heard this story before. What does Jesus write in the dirt? Haven't you wondered this? And he does it twice, did you notice that? He writes twice in the dirt? 
And what's so, you know, and people, people made many good suggestions about this. People have said, well, he's writing their names in the dirt, right? Uh, there's a few manuscripts that actually specify and say he's writing their sins in the dirt. Ooh, can you imagine that? <clears throat> but I actually think the most striking thing about his writing is precisely that it does not tell us what he writes. But do you notice what it does tell us? It doesn't tell us what he writes, but it does, interestingly enough, tell us what he writes with. Did you notice that? It's really easy to miss it because people get so focused on what he's writing that you miss what he's writing with. What is he writing with? He writes with his finger. Do you know there's only one other place in the entire Bible where someone writes with a finger? Now, you might be thinking of Daniel. I actually looked this up before just to make sure. Technically, the hand that writes on the wall in Daniel writes with fingers, plural, okay? So I know some of you are going like, whoa, man, this is pedantic. I know, but I'm a professor, so that's what we do. So go with me, okay? Just go with me. The only other place in the Bible where somebody writes with a single finger is God writing what? The Ten Commandments. Do you think it's an accident that the only two places in Scripture where somebody writes with a finger are here and God writing the Ten Commandments, and what's at issue here is the interpretation and application of that law that God wrote? Of course not. Of course not, right? Do you see what Jesus is trying to show by doing this? And he's showing this to the gathered crowd. He's saying, I am the author of the very law you are bringing to bear on this woman. And what that means for them is that he is also the rightful interpreter of the law. It's exactly what Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, right? And then later in his teaching in Matthew's own gospel, Jesus will summarize the entire law with his commandments, love God and love neighbor. What gives him the right to say that he can interpret the law? Answer, he's the author of it. He wrote it. And that leads us to something important because Jesus then is not simply a man under the law like they are and like you are and like I am. He's himself the legislator. He's the lawgiver. And that explains his right to give the final words of our passage, go and sin no more. This doesn't mean that Jesus reneges on the law or bends it or ignores it. Jesus is not embarrassed by the law. Quite the contrary. As the very one who gave the law, he knows the law against adultery, for example, reflects his own character. He knows it's actually for her good and the good of society. Think how good prohibitions against adultery are. Think about the way they protect the integrity of families and protect children by keeping parents together, right? Jesus knows the law is good. It's good for her. He also happens to know that this particular law, if you went back to Deuteronomy and Leviticus, requires both parties to be punished. And many interpreters over the centuries have noticed how striking it is that she is brought alone. And so I take it that what Jesus is doing is exposing the scribes and Pharisees in their thirst for justice, he's exposing it as an, as an empty sham. It's a sham. They're not actually interested in justice. He knows they're interested in trapping him. And one of the things that Jesus knows from what he teaches elsewhere is that the measure we use to judge others will be turned around and used on us, won't it? So that if it's judgment without mercy that we want, it is judgment without mercy 
that we will get, right? As the author of the law, Jesus is its true interpreter. And they see this, and they see their error. They see, if I can put it this way, they see who they have messed with, right? And I'll come back to this point, but they leave. They leave, don't they? So the first thing is that Jesus is the author of the law and therefore it's true interpreter. Secondly, as the sinless one, Jesus is the only human judge who, can, who can't be judged himself. As the sinless one, Jesus is the only human judge who can't be judged himself. He's the giver of the law. He's also the one who gets to judge people for it. And he happens to be sinless, which means he's a judge you can never judge. It puts him in a position of remarkable authority. There's no one like him. As, a, as, you, as you know, what gives this story its main point of tension is that the one person in the story who measures up to the bar that Jesus sets is Jesus himself, right? What does he say? Who gets to throw the first stone? He who is without sin. And there's only one person in the story that's without sin, isn't it? And he's the one who shows mercy. He's the one who shows mercy. He's the only one in the story that according to his own standard has the absolute right to condemn the woman and he's the one who doesn't do it. After everyone else has left because they failed his test, it's just Jesus who says, neither do I condemn you. Isn't that amazing? In Jesus we find a judge who loves justice and mercy. And he never uses justice to sort of get at his enemies. Do you see? He's never willing to bend it the way there. They're not actually interested in justice, are they? They're not actually interested in the principle here. All they want to do is trap somebody they don't like. Get rid of a teacher who's become very inconvenient to them. That's not how Jesus uses justice though, is it? Jesus is the sinless one who can't be judged by any of us and yet he refuses to judge her. It's really wonderful. You see, the woman caught in sin here can't do to Jesus what we can do to others when we get caught in our own sin. Do you notice this? Think about what you and I tend to do when we get caught doing something wrong. We have, we have various strategies, of course, as humans when we get caught, okay? But one of our strategies is to turn the table on our accuser, right? Like every child learns how to do this by age three, four, five, right? Goes something like this. One sibling comes and tattles on another. Mom, he didn't finish cleaning up and he's watching TV. And what does the other sibling say? Immediately responds with, well, he left his shoes on the carpet again, <laughs> right? Don't we do this? You try to turn the table on your accuser. And you say, well, yeah, but what about? Do you realize that when it comes to Jesus as the judge, nobody ever has that option with him? Because he's the only one in the story who's sinless. That's why they have to flee. Nobody can look at Jesus and say, well, yeah, but what about you? You're not sinless either, Jesus, so what kind of standard is this? But of course, he is sinless. He's the only sinless one. He's in that way, then, the judge who can't be judged in return. And it makes his response all the remarkable. The judge who can't be judged is sinless. This is one who is above all jurisdiction. And he's the one who releases her from judgment. Do you ever think about why? I mean, of course you know the answer, but 
One of the things you need to know about when you read the Gospels is you need to read everything Jesus does in light of what he's going to do in the story. What I mean by that is you need to read the story always in light of his crucifixion. He's always in the Gospels headed toward the cross. So when you read something like this with Jesus forgiving her, you can't read this as saying, well, Jesus is saying he's forgiving her because he doesn't actually care about adultery. And thankfully, the story makes that abundantly clear, right? By saying, go from now on and sin no more. But could I ask it this way? What gives this judge the right to do this? Has Jesus not made a mockery of justice by letting her go unpunished? We don't know if she's married or not, and there's some debate about this, but just for the sake of argument here, imagine that she is married and you're her husband. Would you still think of her as sort of the person you want to identify with in the story? Isn't it true that when you read the story, we all, we're not the Pharisees, right? <laughs> we know not to be the Pharisees in the story. We want to identify with the woman. But what if you're the husband of the woman? Then who do you identify with? And are you happy with what Jesus has done? What gives him the right to forgive her? Friends, the very simple answer is Jesus knows where he is going. And he knows that he is headed to the cross. And on the cross, he will become, as one theologian put it, the judge who is judged in our place. What gives Jesus the right to forgive her sins is he knows he will take her judgment upon himself. Right? So he has to sacrifice an ounce of his own goodness and righteousness as this judge who no one else can judge, right? Third and finally, Jesus as the judge is willing and eager to forgive sinners, right? Jesus as the judge is willing and eager to forgive sinners. And it's this aspect of him being the judge and the lawgiver that makes Christ's forgiveness of us so astounding, isn't it? Do you see, one of the things you need to realize about Jesus' forgiveness of us is that when Jesus forgives us, he never does it the way we do. You're thinking, what, what are you talking about? This guy is just trying to confuse us here this morning. First he's talking about manuscripts. <laughs> now he's talking about weird stuff with forgiveness. Jesus has never forgiven the way you have forgiven. What do I mean? Do you realize that every time you forgive someone, you are always forgiving them as someone who needs forgiveness yourself? Right? It's one of the things that should make forgiving as humans a bit easier. There's an old saying that says to know all is to forgive all. The idea is sort of like if you really knew where a person was coming from, you knew their background, maybe you knew how they grew up or how bad a day they had had, you'd find it easier to forgive them for what they had done wrong to you, right? To know all is to forgive all, your understanding, right? Because you have been in a place where you needed to ask someone else for forgiveness, right? This is something that good parents do. We can say to our children at times when they've made a big mistake, right? Think about when, you're, when, you're, when you're, your teenage son gets in his first car accident and it's not an innocent one. It's because he was doing something stupid and you're the dad. You know at some point in the conversation that you're having with him, you have to say, all right, son, I've what? I've done it too, right? We've all made mistakes. But do you realize Jesus can never say that to you? He can never say to you, oh, Peter, you messed up again. But Peter, I've messed up many times myself. <laughs> to even say it sounds silly, doesn't it? it? Sounds absurd. Jesus cannot look at this woman and say, I know it's hard to avoid adultery. I've done it sometimes myself. Right? <laughs> he cannot say that. That's the one thing he can't say. He's the sinless one. 
He's the only one in the story without sin. He never forgives as one who has needed forgiveness. He's never wronged another human being. He's never felt the sting of his own guilt. And friends, that's just one of the many things that makes his offer of forgiveness so incredible, isn't it? He is the judge, he is the lawgiver, and he is himself completely innocent of any violation of it. And yet he forgives. He forgives lavishly, abundantly. He loves to forgive. He loves to forgive. He is then, friends, in some, and it's, I think it's fair to say, he is far more forgiving than we are, is he not? Even though he has less reason to do it, if I can put it that way, at least in terms of having sinned himself, right? He's far more forgiving. Friend, what that means for you this morning is your sins have to be the last thing that keeps you to come to him. That's the thing that needs to bring you to him, do you see? You have no reason to hide your sin from a judge like this. He loves to forgive sinners. So friend, I have bad news for you. If you're not a sinner today, he's not here for you. What does he say in the Gospels? He did not, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. And he says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And friends, that brings us to the last point about the, the people we see in the story besides Jesus. Have you ever noticed how they respond differently? He says, let he who's without sin cast the first stone and they all disappear one by one. So striking that it's from the oldest to the youngest. Presumably because the oldest ones have more sin that they know of, right? But I think it's interesting that, that they all leave and he seems to not notice. He's still writing in the ground. Did you catch that? He's still writing in the ground. He stands up, he looks around, they're gone and he has to ask her where everybody went. Now, have you ever thought about this? They're all gone. Couldn't she have left too? Couldn't she have slipped away with the last young guy? And then Jesus is just standing there completely by himself and it's like, well, where'd everybody go? <laughs> but she stays. And it's not because she's sinless and they're not or vice versa. So clear from the story that everyone but Jesus is a sinner in the story. But she's the only one who stays. Presumably the forgiveness on offer was for them too. But they did not want it. They were not willing to expose themselves and say, here's the sins I have. So instead they, fl they left quietly hoping that no one would know. Friends, the great promise for us this morning is that God already knows your sins. You may think that you're hiding them from yourself or from others, and you may even be doing that successfully, but God already knows. Your sin cannot be a hindrance to him accepting you. In fact, it's the very thing he wants you to bring to him and find the same kind of love, forgiveness, compassion, and acceptance that this sinful woman, can you imagine how, how embarrassing must that have been for her? Isn't this like our greatest fear of having our sins somehow projected publicly and everybody knows about it? And yet she finds herself in the arms of the best person ever that you could have that happen with, right? Because Jesus loves her and he loves to show forgiveness. So if this morning you are 
aware of your own sin. Maybe it's sexual sin. Maybe it's a different kind of sin. What I want you to see from this text is what a merciful judge you have in Jesus. He's far more merciful than any other human judge. Frankly, he's far more merciful than you are to other people. And he calls you this morning to surrender to his rightful authority and in doing so find that he is full of grace. Maybe for some of you today would be the first time you do that where you come to Jesus and say, you know what? I've been trying to hide my sin for a long, long time. I've been pretending that I don't have it or that's not as bad or that somebody else's is worse and therefore I don't need Christ's forgiveness. Friends, the only person you're fooling is yourself, right? Come to him this morning and find that he is full of lavish grace for you. And if you already know that lavish grace, the reminder for you this morning is just remember it and thank God for it, right? That we have this one, Jesus, who is the author of the law, therefore it's true interpreter. He's the sinless one and the only judge who can't be judged, but he is the best judge ever because he is so full of mercy and forgiveness and he has come for sinners. Would you pray with me?